Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. Uh, Why don't you take a hold of your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 6, we're going to be looking at. Actually, today there's a number of different places that we're going to be looking in God's Word this morning. Uh, We continue our series called Abide Together. Uh, Really, this is a continuation of our theme for this year from John chapter 15, where we are told uh, to abide in Christ, uh, that we should cling and grip and hold on to the things of Jesus. And we begun a series last week uh, about how we're going to do that together. And one of the things we said was that I must pursue the things that Jesus loves if I'm going to abide, if I'm going to hold on and grip the vine of Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at how Jesus loves the church. uh, And so we say you are loved and how Jesus loves lost people. And so we are sent And uh, today I want to continue uh, to help us understand how we do that together. How do we help uh, others see that God loves them and and bring them into the family of God? And so uh, we have at our church what we call six pursuits. Uh, These are things that are really valuable to us. They're distinguishing marks about who we are. Uh, You may have seen them on our website or in a membership class or when we uh, gathered together when we had bulletins that we would produce and the posters that we we would put up. And really they describe the kind of church that we want to be, the things that we are striving together to try to to mark us uh, as a church. And so when you think about the six pursuits let me just ask you, you see the, uh, there's the little logo that goes with our, with our graphics here. What, uh, which of the six pursuits are we collectively the strongest in? And, and which are the, of the six pursuits do you think that we are the weakest in? Well, why don't you just type that into the chat right now? I think we're strongest when it comes to worship, or I think, it, I think we're weakest when it comes to evangelism, or just of the six marks that we uh, know, what would you say uh, is our strongest and what is our weakest? I was thinking about that when I was trying to decide where do we start, uh, which one do we start talking about? What is the first in the series? And, and it's easy for the preacher to say, well, I want uh, to preach about biblical preaching, Um, the message of Jesus. But I I didn't think that was the right place to start. I I actually was really drawn to the idea that we uh, talk about passionate worship. And since out of our worship is really what flows everything else, I thought that was the place to to start our our response to the message. Uh, But really, uh, I decided that we need to start somewhere else. We needed to start today uh, with the issue of fervent prayer because uh, we want to see who God is, and that's tied so much to, uh, to prayer and our activity in it. And so we're starting today uh, with the, the message about fervent prayer. The key verse that we use to describe this particular pursuit is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. And so that's why I had you turn there this morning. Let's read this together. I've put it on the screen for us as well. Ephesians uh, 6, 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, you'll notice right away that this verse is actually, it's kind of like a continuation of something that was being said earlier. And if, if you look back at verse 17, you see that uh, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit is being talked about because this is the armor of God passage. Actually, if you look all the way up to the top and you look at verse 10, we see this statement. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The command there is that we, are, that we be strong in the Lord. But how do we know? What's the measurement of if we are strong in the Lord? It's not actually the, the, the metaphor of the inanimate objects of the armor. Uh, what, I, what you see is the armor is describing something, but something has to animate that. Something has to give that life. And I believe that comes in verse 18 here when it says that when we pray at all times in the Spirit, the armor of God is active around us. Prayer is at the very core of what we are to be about if we are going to be strong in the strength of the Lord and in His might. The challenge here, though, is, and it really, I think, it pertains to the question I just asked you, which of the six pursuits do you think we collectively are the weakest in? I would say, as our pastor, that I, in my evaluation, we are weakest in the area of prayer. When you think about these six things, I think it's something that our church needs to grow much in. And, and by this, I will just tell you, I don't mean that we are not a praying church, because I believe that we are. But we don't depend upon God in prayer. We don't pray with faith-filled expectant, expectance with the way the Word of God often describes it. We, we pray for sure. We're a church that prays, but I believe we need to be strengthened that there's some things that are lacking in this and we need to grow. You say, well, pastor, that's, that seems a little bit harsh. Why, why would you say that? And I think the evidence is uh, really when it comes to our prayer meetings. When you think about our church and the activities that we gather for, the thing that we, is least attended in our church is our corporate prayer meetings. Now, I don't want there to be a guilt-driven motivation that comes from like, oh, we're failing in this, and so now we got to do this, and pastor's preaching about it, and he's telling us we got to do it. So we, I don't want that to happen. I want us to, to, to see the gospel in this and see our need in light of the gospel. And really, I want you to know that even as I talk about our collective need to grow in this issue of prayer, that I have that very personal need myself. I want you to know that as I, as I say this, that I believe that it starts with me. I'm, I'm your pastor and I lead us. And if our church is weak in an area, it likely has to do with my failure of leading us in that particular thing. And as we entered the MCO back in March, one of the things that, that the MCO has revealed in me is my personal weakness when it comes to prayer and my need to be strengthened in that. And so today I want you to know, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm repenting of not leading us as well as we needed to be as a church when it comes to prayer. And, and as I realized some of the things that I've been wrong in and some of the things that I've not depended upon and with faith-filled expectation asked God for, as I'm seeing that I've been wrong in those things, I'm also telling you, we can't save ourselves. We can't do this in our own. We can't just work harder at this and, and it actually accomplish what God wants us to do. True repentance not only identifies the area that we're wrong, but it shows we're too weak to do this on our own. 
And so I've been working and asking God and praying. I actually have, uh, I, uh, I track many of my prayers using little prayer cards. And so I have this prayer card right here in it. And at the top, it just simply is the topic of what I'm praying about. Increase my prayer. And then I just put in quotes from the scripture, teach me to pray. And God's been doing a work. I've been tracking how he's been doing that. And there's been some reading and some training that I've attended. And there was actually a very impactful sermon that I heard uh, by, a man, by a man by the name of Sam Albury. Uh, he's from England, but currently live, re, residing in the U.S. He's now a speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he's a Gospel Coalition editor and also a visiting professor at Cedarville University. And Sam Albury has written some fantastic book. Actually, my favorite book on the resurrection is called Lifted by Sam. And, uh, and I was uh, actually uh, seeing a sermon that he preached, and I was so impacted by it that I was like, I'm going to use his resources to help me preach this sermon to our church because I need to grow in this. And so today, with much credit to Sam for Sam Albury for, for what, uh, we're, where we're going here today, I want you to know that. The issue here is that we need help in our prayer lives. That's what I realized, and I think not just me personally, but we together need that. And typically what happens when we realize that we need help is that we look for examples of people who are doing it well and try to model ourselves after that, and we try to learn new techniques. But it's interesting that when the New Testament encourage us, encourages us to grow in prayer, it doesn't teach us techniques, but it tells us more about God and who He is. That's because prayer is not defined by what we do, but by who God is. Because in the Bible, prayer is a natural response to the God who has revealed Himself to us. So if we need help in our prayer lives, and, and I believe we do, the best thing is to be reminded of to whom it is that we are praying, to be reminded of God and how He helps us to pray. So if we identify a problem with prayer and we try to fix the praying, we're likely only giving attention to the symptom of what's going on. And we know if we just teach the symptoms and not actually the root of the issue that we don't actually find healing. The, the real underlying problem is not the praying, but it's my understanding of God and how He deals with that. So when I was in high school, I worked at a job where I pulled up my car and my car couldn't, and my car couldn't start at the end of the day. I didn't know why. I could just hear this clicking sound, click, 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 as I turned the key and the ignition. I didn't know what to do, and, and so I was frustrated by it, but thankfully I worked at a place where there was a mechanic on, on site. And he came out and he took a look at my car and I turned the key and he heard the noise. I mean, he hadn't even hardly looked at the thing and he identified right away, your starter solenoid is out. The solenoid is, is the connection that goes to the main power source of the battery to start the car. I, I didn't know that at that point. I didn't even know what a solenoid was. But he knew what it was and he, he knew how it worked and so he was able to fix it. We need to know how prayer works. We need to know the inner workings of prayer if we are going to grow in this. And so I want to teach that to us here today by way of this main idea. Write this down if you're taking notes. We pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. 
when we talk about the inner workings of prayer, and if we're going to grow in our understanding of prayer, we need to see this. We pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. When, when I understand what's happening when I talk to God, I will be marked by a fervent prayer that is dependent and expectant, faith-filled. So I want to set the scene for you here by looking at something that Paul wrote in Ephesians, just a few pages over. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, I want, to, I want you to see the posture of the Christian life. In Ephesians 2, verse 18, it says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus, we all have access by the Spirit to the Father. Paul is proclaiming what Jesus has done. He's been telling what Jesus has done so that we have a relationship with God. And he's saying that as Christians, by the Spirit, through the Son, to, we have access to the Father. We're going to be thinking about prayer here today and how understanding the fact that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit helps us to pray. Now, just a, a quick little understanding here uh, of what we believe as Christians. We believe in one God and that one God has shown himself to be three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, God is, is a triune shape. Uh, in fact, that God is, the fact that God is triune should shape all of our Christian life. Do you remember when Jesus called the first followers to make disciples in the Great Commission? He said the disciples should baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name of God, the Trinity, is to be the framework for our entire life as disciples of Jesus. It defines who we are as believers and it shapes and fuels our love for Him. And it's no different when it comes to prayer. So we pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. Let's start with this. Let's understand what it means that we pray by the Spirit. When we say we are praying by the Spirit, we're saying that no prayer happens apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ask you to turn to three or four passages here today. The first is Romans chapter 8. If you could just turn your Bibles back to Romans chapter 8 here this morning. I want to show you a couple of verses that are really key to help us understand that, that, that Paul is telling us how the Spirit helps us to pray, how the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. He, he's really going to show us here how the Holy Spirit has an impact on our life. Now, I, you know how sometimes you enter a room and, and there's just somebody with a personality, just that person is influencing everybody in the room. I had a man growing up, we called him Uncle Dan. Uncle Dan Luno uh, was this big, jolly, loving, gentle giant, but his voice was low and booming, and he would laugh very loudly, and just his personal presence overtook the whole room. And the Holy Spirit is, is kind of like that. So, so let's look at uh, verse, eight, verse 15 together. It says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Yeah. Now we're going to keep going, but I just want to stop there for a moment and, and help us understand what the effect of the Spirit is and is not. It's interesting. Paul says that the Spirit is not one thing. It says the Spirit is something else. So, so the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of slavery. He is a spirit of adoption. Now that's wonderful because we understand that we can be adopted into the family of God. Because we are forgiven by what Jesus Christ has done, we, we actually are more than just pardoned, we're adopted. Now, now just, just a quick difference here. In my country, a man who is convicted a convicted criminal can be pardoned by the President of the United States. But, but if the president gives a pardon to me for something that I've done, it's not, it doesn't mean that I have a relationship with him. I mean, I could go knock on the White House door and let myself in, maybe, and, and go into the dining room to, and sit myself down, but, but I'm not adopted. I'm not part of the family. I would be stopped long before I was able to do that. You can be pardoned and forgiven by God, but do you have a relationship with God? Well, this verse is telling us we do because we have the spirit who is a spirit of adoption. I mean, we can embrace this with all of our soul. It says we can, we can cry out, Abba, Father. To, to the first readers, likely Jewish readers, they would have understood that this is what a Jewish child would call his father, call his dad. It's this intimate term. It's this family term. It's this warm and protective term of what a child calls his father. And it's what Jesus calls his heavenly father. You remember when he did this, right? We studied the book of Mark not long ago. And Mark records that when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's crucified, Jesus is praying and he cries out, Abba, Father. And what we see here is that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives shows us that we can have the same kind of intimate, close, family, protective, warm relationship with God. So let's keep going. Verse 16 continues and it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Two things here. Uh, by the Spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father. And secondly, our soul is assured that we are children of God even as we do that. As we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit is testifying with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. As we pray, we are assured of this relationship. I mean, do you ever struggle with knowing if you're a part of God's family? It's actually not an uncommon thing to wonder, is that really true of me? And let me just ask you here, according to these verses, are, are you praying? <laughs> because if you're praying, the Spirit in the moment of prayer will be assuring you of your relationship with the Father upon your belief in Jesus Christ. Now you might be saying, but pastor, it's so hard to pray. It's so hard. Like I, That's part of the problem. I'm not sure that I have this relationship. And so it's hard to talk to somebody that I don't have a relationship with. Sure, it's easy when I'm a good friend with somebody, but when I'm uncertain if we're friends or not, that makes the conversation harder. Well, the Holy Spirit, it says, is helping us to start pray. It's crying out, Abba, Father, for us. But He's not just helping us start to pray. He's helping us to continue to pray as well. Look over at verse 23 to help us understand this. It says this here. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 can be a little bit confusing because on the one hand it says that we are groaning inwardly, but notice the phrase right after there, it says that we are waiting eagerly. So it's kind of like, Paul, what, what is it? Are, uh, are you talking about when we're groaning inwardly or when we're super excited? We're waiting eagerly and, and excitedly. Which one is it? And Paul here is saying that these two things go together. He's already told us, he's already told us earlier in the chapter that we are adopted as children. God is our father. And that happens through Jesus Christ. But now he's showing that as we wait for, wait for the completion of our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies, that, that we aren't fully there yet. And so there's a, a groaning that still happens. There's a longing for what is yet to come. Oftentimes we talk about uh, how we live in a tension, the tension of the already and the not yet of the Christian life. I know that I'm already forgiven of my sins and that I can live righteously out of the bondage of slavery, but I run in the tension of like everyday living where I struggle to live righteously as I should. And the same thing is happening here. We have Christ, but we're longing for him, yearning for him. We have eternal security, but we're waiting right now in this in-between time before he returns and brings us to, with him and the redemption of our bodies happen. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit is helping us in the tension of, those, of that moment of knowing, am I really in the family of God or not? Actually, what we see down in verse 26 should assure us even further. Let's look at this. It says in verse 28, Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is a powerful thing. This is the idea that when I don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit is going to direct me. So like when my friend gets that really scary health diagnosis, and I don't know, am I supposed to pray for healing or for endurance? Or maybe it's both of those things, or maybe it's something else, and I'm confused about what to pray. The Holy Spirit, it says, is going to intercede for us. He's going to pray. Intercede is another word of, of prayer, of asking. In all of our confusion as we pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That's amazing. That's such a gift that when we pray, we pray by the Holy Spirit who's praying for us. He, now, you need to know, he's not saying that I'm just going to take over and pray for you. It doesn't mean that we don't get any activity in this. What he's doing is he's coming alongside of us. He's supporting and strengthening what we are doing in prayer. So he's not saying, you're hopeless and I'll take over. He's saying, we're going to be partners together in this. And we're going to pray, I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to pray for you. It's kind of like when a dad takes his son out to teach him how to play golf. If you, if, if you were to take his son out and say, now, hey, just watch me and take some notes and just observe what I'm doing, that's not really how that's, that's done. That's not really teaching him how to play golf. 
What the dad does is, is he stands behind the boy and he puts his hands around him and puts his hands, his big hands on the child's hands. And he teaches them how to make that swing so that when you see them hit the golf ball and ask the question, who hit it? It's both of them. And the Holy Spirit is helping us in that same way. Through the Holy Spirit, our prayers are presented to the Father according to His will. Look at verse 27. It says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All prayer is by the Holy Spirit. God prays with us as we pray to Him by the Holy Spirit. And that means, there's a couple of key things. It means no prayer is wasted. If the, if the prayer is by the Spirit, if we're prompted by Him and helped by Him and presented to God, then we never are, well, I'll just pray as if it's the last thing to do, as if all the other important things have been done. And then, and then kind of we just throw this little hopeful wish up there, not knowing which way it's going to land. That's not prayer at all. We, we see no prayer is wasted. It's never just this thing that's going on because the God, the Spirit is praying with us and for us and by, uh, by Him we are praying, which means that there's never a bad time to pray. It can't be, that, it can't be possible if we're praying by the Spirit. I mean, it doesn't matter how asleep you feel in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter how confused you are in the storm of life. It doesn't matter how hopeless it seems as you face the obstacles. It's never a bad time to pray. We pray by the Spirit. We're not praying on our own when we're praying as Christians. So let me just stop and ask an application question for a moment. Have you believed prayer happens by your ability or strength? Have you believed, I would say wrongly believed, that prayer is something that you have to manufacture, you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you have to do in your own strength and in your own power. Your ability to pray is really what is the communication. That's less than praying by the Spirit if you believe that. There is no relationship because you don't have the Spirit tying that relationship together and you don't know what to say because the Spirit isn't directing you. If you've been praying, not by the Spirit, but by yourself, if you've been the one that has been doing all the work to say the words, and likely that means that you've given up, likely that means that you, you've just kind of stopped because you haven't had the ability to go on, then, then really I, I believe the text of Scripture is calling us to repent. To repent of thinking that I can do this on my own. And that it's all about me and my ability to pray. And when I'm weak in praying, that that, that, that somehow means that, that a prayer just isn't, doesn't work. We need to repent of that. And we need to repent of the idea that we can somehow fix this by just hearing this message and thinking, okay, I'm just going to try harder. We need to believe what the Word of God is teaching us. I mean, this fuels me to think, wow, I have the Holy Spirit alongside me, partnering with me, praying for me, giving me uh, the hearing before God and doing it according to His will. 
There's immense power that's involved in that. What a privilege to have that. That should drive us to say, Lord, I want to pray. I have this amazing gift. Why would I not take advantage of it? And so we would fight to be fervent in prayer. What we're saying here today is that if we're going to grow in, in our prayer, that we need to understand how it works. And so we pray by the Spirit, we've heard. But number two here, we pray through the Son. This idea of praying through the Son really is revealed in the amazing relationship that we see described in John chapter 17. And so if you have your pages, just turn over to John chapter 17. And actually, it's part of one big long prayer. Chapter nine, chapter, John chapter 17 is one big long prayer by Jesus. We're just going to look at a couple of verses here today, and we're going to see how beautiful and intimate and perfect the relationship is between the Father and the Son. We're going to see that perfect joy exists and that there's the pleasure the Father and the Son take in one another is the, is the most perfect, best relationship that we could ever observe. That's why we see Jesus say, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He says also in this prayer, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. And we see the Father say, this is my Son whom I have loved, who I love. The work of the Son, the work of Jesus Christ, is to open the relationship of the Father to us. It's to give us the kind of relationship that the Father and the Son are enjoying already for eternity. So John chapter 17 shows us this because, shows, uh, shows you that this, because, it, excuse me, it shows you this because it means what God has going with the Father, we can have going with God ourselves. What, what this chapter is showing us is that Jesus is opening this relationship so that the perfect relationship that he has with the Father, you and I can have because of him. Look at verse 22 for a second. In verse 22, it says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What we are seeing here is a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on with the Trinity the veil is kind of be lifted and we're seeing behind the curtain and we're seeing that this, this relationship and the perfect oneness between the Father that exists here and that, the, the, that Jesus, the Son, is the one that is opening the door for us to have this. Look at verse 26. It says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love that the Father has for the Son, the perfect relationship, the, the, the ultimate relationship is available to you and I, notice, through Jesus Christ. Uh, when Jesus is in you, when you believe in Him, you have access to the fixed, repaired relationship with God, and you have this amazing opportunity to have the relationship that exists. The love which the Father has for the Son, the love that prompted the Father to say, this is my Son whom I love. We can have that same love of the Father to us. The Father saying, I love Nate. Insert your name there. 
And that happens through the Son. Now, Sam Albury talks about this and, and illustrates this with a fantastic story from his life. He, he, is, he says it this way. Sorry, let me read the story for us. He says, I went on a flight and I knew the pilot. I had booked the ticket and I knew that my friend was, the, was a pilot. I knew he worked for that airline. And so I booked the ticket and I dropped him a line and I said, just thought I'd let you know that I booked the ticket on your airline. This is the route that I'm going and I don't know if it's the one that you fly on, but any chance that you'll be flying on this particular day? A few days before the flight, my friend emailed me and said, I'm going to be flying you on Monday. I'll catch you in the departure lounge and I'm going to be the captain of the flight on this, uh, this time. So I turned up to the departure lounge and I just happened to be wearing a shirt and a tie and a jacket. I was thinking, just in case he needs me to sit somewhere near the front of the plane, I will look as upgradable as possible. Just the hint that I could be comfortable in that kind of environment. I'll blend in beautifully, I thought. Anyway, he turned up and I, he was dressed all captain-y. He said, okay, Sam, here's what's going to happen. You need to be the last person to board the plane. When you get on the plane, say to the cabin crew, I'm the guest of the, cabin, uh, of the captain. I thought, this sounds like something promising, and it's going, that's going to be in the offering. This is good, and so I straightened up my tie, and I buttoned my jacket, and I waited for everybody to get on the plane, and then I got on the plane. Before I said anything, the cabin crew says to me, oh, you're with the captain, aren't you? I said, yes, and she said, well, follow me. And then we turned left which is a sweet moment that has ruined every flight that I've been on since. We turned left, carried on walking, carried on walking again. I was thinking, we're walking through first class now. This is really good. What could be better than first class? Well, we carry on walking, and it turns out the cockpit is the one thing you get to next after first class. She knocked on the door, and the captain welcomed me in and said, Hi, Sam, just take a seat there. He sat me down in the jump seat behind him and the co-pilot, and I stayed there the entire flight. I'm a bit of a plane geek, he says, so this was amazing to be in the cockpit, to be of this enormous jet. Uh, from takeoff to landing, I was able to sit in the seat. They've changed the rules a fair bit since then, specifically to keep people like me as far away as the cockpit as possible, but it was an amazing experience. The cabin crew could not do enough for me. They would give me the first class menu and say, anything you want, let us know. We'll be happy to get it for you. A couple of times they said, if you just want to hang out in first class for a bit and watch a movie, you're very welcome to. I was thinking, I'm never going to get a movie that's better than this. This is awesome. At the end of the flight, when I reluctantly had to get out of the airplane, the flight's purser came to me and gave me a goodie bag as a thank you for being on the plane, a bottle of champagne, presents, etc., and said, thank you for joining us today. And I said the only thing I could think of saying, which was, anytime. You know, I can be available. I can be very flexible if it comes to this kind of thing. Just let me know if I can ever help again. I could put myself out to once again have this experience. Well, as I left the flight, I started to reflect on what an amazing day I had had. And it occurred to me that because I came as a friend of the captain, I came in at his level. 
All the courtesy that would normally be shown to him was extended to me as well. If I had just come in under my own name, I would have been shoved right to the back of the plane where I should have been. But because I came in the captain's name, I came in at his level. When we come to the Father through the Son, we come in at the Son's level. We come to the Father through the Son, and that's not the bottom rung. We, we, need, we're told, we need to be told this over and over and over. I need to hear this all the time. I come in at the level of Jesus, the very top. And that makes a difference, not only in my relationship with God, the salvation that I can have, but in my prayer life. I don't have to try to drum up rapport with God. I don't have to break the ice. I don't have to manufacture a good vibe between us so that he's, he, he's favorable to my participation there. I don't have to create a dynamic because the perfect dynamic that has existed for eternity, now I have access to. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Do you use that phrase at the end of your prayer? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's, by the way, not a formula. It's not a password. It's not some mystical code that we need to have. It reminds us that we don't pray in our name, but in the name of Jesus because we come at His level. Daily, I'm tempted to come to God on my own merit, in my own reputation, by my own works, in the spiritual performance that I think might be good enough. I don't come to him that way. I come on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Not of who I am in and of myself, but of who I am in Christ as I abide in him. So that means I have, I have a need. I have a need for Jesus Christ. I have a need to come in his name. I need his name. It's possible I could have a terrible day as a Christian I oversleep, I'm late, so I don't get to spend time with God, I don't get to read the Word and pray. I get into the car and it seems like every car on the road is a sworn enemy of mine. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that they had a meeting beforehand to find out how to frustrate me in traffic. I'm unpleasant to other people at work, I miss an opportunity to witness about Jesus to somebody. I give in to temptation. I fall to a sin of the past. I, I, I kick the cat when I get home. I don't feel like I can look God in the eye because of all those terrible things. And I think, I can't pray. My name is so dirty. On the flip side, we could have a great day as a Christian. We wake up early and we read chapters and chapters of God's Word and the sweetest time of prayer is experienced all before breakfast. And then I get in my car and I go to work and I let all the traffic go in front of me. And, and when I get to my job, I'm a ray of sunshine and I witness to one of my coworkers at lunch and they're interested. In the afternoon, I resist temptation, and in the danger of all of that, I could come to God thinking that my day and the way I performed, I can come in my name. And I'm just as wrong on that day as I am on the bad day. We can never come to God in our own name. 
We come to the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ, not the sweat of our brow. So let me ask you a question just to kind of dig into your life and your particular situation here for a moment. Let me ask you this. Have you believed your prayer is accepted because of your name? Because of your spiritual reputation? Because of the way that you've lived your life and, and at this particular moment? Do you come to talk to God in your name or in the name of Jesus? I mean, on a good day, you might think that that's a good thing. You can come in your name. You've performed well. God's going to accept you. Or on a bad day, you think, I can't actually pray. I can't look him in the eye and talk to him because I've been such a terrible person. And in all, in all of this, we come to realize, actually, that's kind of every day. I'm such a dirtbag when it comes to the perfection and holiness of Jesus. Like, I never really add up. And so we get, dis we get discouraged and, and we just don't think prayer works because we stop praying because we've tried to come in our own strength and it's weak and it's failed? Or do we come in the name of Jesus? Even on the worst of days, even on the day where we've performed spiritually so poorly, we come and we say, in Jesus' name, through Jesus Christ, I'm coming, God, to that sweet relationship that I don't earn, that's a complete gift. I'm believing this by faith, but, but I have this relationship. I'm believing in what Jesus has done. He's paid for all of those things so that I can have this conversation with you right now, God. And I know that you love to have this conversation because you see the perfection of Jesus on me. Would you believe those things? Would you repent of believing that God's not interested in hearing from you because of your performance I mean, in one level, correct, but that would always be true. He's always interested to have a conversation with you because of Jesus's performance, which you have counted to you as your righteousness, and so he wants to pray. I mean, does that not drive you to a place where we realize this relationship is so amazing, not only by the Spirit, but through Jesus Christ. I have the love of God on me. He wants to hear from me. He's not irritated when I come to him because he loves that relationship. See, in this, when we understand the workings of prayer, we begin to see how God uh, actually motivates us to pray fervently with him. We pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. We're learning how prayer works. And what we're seeing here is that the third element of this, as we know God in his triune uh, presence, we see that we pray to the Father. We're going to need to turn over to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is, is the record of Jesus uh, in one of his famous sermons, his most famous sermon. And in the middle of his uh, famous sermon, in, in, in chapter 7 here, we see him talk a bit about prayer. And he told Jesus, uh, he told the disciples when they were asking about how to pray, he says, when you pray, say, our Father. We're to pray to the Father. That doesn't mean that we can't pray to the Holy Spirit. He's every bit as divine as the person of the Father. That doesn't mean we can't pray to the Son, Jesus Christ. There's actually many New Testament examples where prayer is to Jesus. By saying that we pray to the Father, I'm not saying that we pray only to the person of the Father. But what we're saying is that we pray mainly to the Father. I mean, this is the model of Jesus Christ. He shows 
us the kind of father that we pray to and why we can pray to this kind of father. Now, we have to take a pause for a moment here and talk about fatherhood. When we talk about the fatherhood of God, we see that through the lens of human fatherhood that we've experienced. And that can lead us to some really shaky ground. Some of us have never known our father. Some have been rejected by their father. Some are mourning their father. Some are struggling to forgive their father. Others are are thankful for for mostly good fathers, and, and, and it's a good thing. But regardless of your experience, we need to define fatherhood by who God is rather than the human experience of fathers that we've had. And so Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, uh, 7 to 11, helps us understand fatherhood the way that we should understand it in our Heavenly Father. Two things about this. First, the Father is accessible. He's available is what we're saying. Look at verse 7. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What it's saying here is that God is not over there, distant, uninterested, disconnected. Jesus is showing us that God who made the God who made us is the God who knows us. The God who had a hand in the idea of you is interested in you. And that's not just saying that he's theoretically around somewhere. He's available to you to pray. Look at verse 8. It says, For everyone who asks receives, and for the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. The grammar there actually is done in the present tense, which means there's a continuation of these things. Like nobody stops knocking and seeking. They continue to do that. So it's saying it's not a one-off. It's not a one-time event that happens that this kind of father says, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, because God loves to respond to you. In fact, God is far more interested in giving you answers than many times we are in asking the question. There's a second thing we need to see here from this this short passage. We see in verse 9, the the second thing is that the Father is good. Look at verse 9. It says says this, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? These are two kinds of staple foods at this particular time, bread and fish. And Jesus is saying that it would be absurd for a human father who sees a son who needs nourishment to not give him what he needs. But notice, he says, if you then who are evil, verse 11, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Note here, Jesus assumes that we are evil. You see that? He doesn't even take time to unpack it. But what he says here is that even messed up, wicked human fathers have figured out how to give the basics to the son that they love. How much more then will the perfect father in heaven love to give good gifts to his children? What we're seeing here is that he's good. He's a good God. He loves to provide. He loves to help. He's not irritated when we come to him in need. He doesn't wag his finger and says, get your act together before you come. He loves to be approached and he loves to help. Even as we see that truth, we need to avoid two mistakes. 
And, and to see these mistakes, let me just point you back to James chapter 4. We've recently looked at these verses, but in James chapter 4, we see in, in, these, in verses 2 and 3 mistakes that could happen. Notice mistake number 1 we see in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Mistake number one is that we forget that God loves to give, so we don't ask. There was an airline that did a commercial in 2014 in Canada. In the commercial, uh, the people came, uh, came to the departure lounge of the airport and, and they had set up a big box with a, that looked like a present and a screen and on it was Santa Claus. And, and it was actually a live person on camera who was asking people when they, when they scanned their boarding pass, they would, he would ask them, what do you want for Christmas? It was a Santa vending machine of sorts. And, and they would ask the passengers what they wanted. And, and so there was a man who asked for a pair of socks. Somebody else said a big TV. There was another person who wanted flight home, home for the holiday to visit parents cameras and phones and iPads and all of those things were asked for and all the planes got all the passengers got on the plane and didn't give a second thought to it but while they were flying the the airline had employees in the destination city running around the city purchasing and wrapping everything that had been asked for so that when they got off the airplane and they came to the baggage claim and the conveyor belt was coming around out popped presents wrapped that had their name on it and as they opened up their presents, they saw the thing that they had told Santa, Santa that they wanted. Cameras and phones and TVs and socks and f- tickets home to see all the parents. Everyone got that, what, what they asked for. And it was this kind of wonderful commercial social media moment. Everybody thought it was a wonderful thing. But I got to thinking, what about the guy who asked for the socks? How big of an idiot does he now feel <laughs> at this moment? I mean, socks versus TVs and airline tickets home and cameras and all. I mean, he asked only for socks. He could have asked for anything he wanted. And then I thought, wait, is that what the Lord is saying your prayer life is like? You do not have because you do not ask. We forget God loves to give. That's mistake number one. Here's mistake number two. We forget that God is good, so we ask wrongly. In verse 3, it says it helps us see this. It says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, on your desires. The danger here is that we treat prayer as a way to get God to do what we want Him to do. We're in control of the agenda. We're in charge. And we treat him like room service. Just get us what I've decided that I need, sort out all the details, and bring it to me. But because God is good, he doesn't always give us what we want, even what we think we need, even what we are convinced is the morally right thing in the situation that we're in. It's not always good for us. And so we set our hearts on things, morally good things that we feel have to be right. And yet for our ultimate good, God does not give it to us because he loves us. Tim Keller helps here. He said it this way. God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. 
God is good and he's committed to your ultimate good. And so sometimes he says no. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be asking. It doesn't mean that we should be, shouldn't believe he loves to answer in these ways. And so let me, by application, just ask you this. Have you stopped praying because you wrongly believe God doesn't give or is not good? It's possible that you don't, you aren't marked by fervent prayer and you don't show up to prayer meetings and you don't really engage in prayer and you kind of think that prayer doesn't work and, and you're kind of at the spot where uh, you're just kind of on the fence and then the whole prayer thing and what's going on there. And listen, we, we don't pray because we think it's a waste of time and because we don't get what we want. And we need to repent of those things. We need to repent because we see that there is a Father who is accessible and available and wants to give us good things according to His will. He's good, and so He doesn't give us everything that we pray for, but that's the best thing when, even when that happens. And you can have great confidence that you can pray to the Father who loves you immensely through the Son and by the Spirit is listening and allowing the Spirit to even transform your prayers to be according to His will, that He would give you everything that you would ask for that is best for you. I mean, would that not motivate us to pray? If we would believe that prayer is by the Spirit and through the Son and to the Father, do you see how understanding how prayer works fuels us like, like you, with confidence, you can begin to, to engage in prayer in ways that have, have gone stale and, and have gone silent. Because you see, wait a second, uh, the triune God, He's told us to pray. He wants us to pray. Pray continuously, e Ephesians 6, 18 says. We should never stop praying and depending upon God and with faith expecting God's best for us in that. We pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. And when I understand what's happening when I talk to God, I, I want to be marked by fervent prayer that is dependent and expectant on Him. As we learn to abide together, this message is calling us to see how prayer works and to see what God wants for us in prayer. We pray by the Spirit. He's going to prompt us and call out to the Father for us and then come alongside of us and help us pray to the end. We pray through the Son. We have this gift of sonship ourselves. The, there's an opening of a relationship with the Father. We are now adopted as sons and daughters so that we have the family relationship and we enter into that on the level of Jesus, which John 17 was so clear. The love between the Father and the Son is perfect. And then we, we pray to the Father who's always good and loves to hear from you. He's available and accessible and he wants to hear. He wants you to cry out to him. He wants to give what is good for you. He won't answer and give you bad things. He's going to answer and give you good things. That's the God that we pray to. Listen, when we say as a church, we want to abide together in the issue of prayer. We want to be fervent. We want to be fervent means white hot, fully, full passion involved, fully engaged in that, we're saying we'll do that because of who God is. 
Let's pray right now and ask him to help us to be fervent in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that that is the foundation of of our understanding of you and our ability to have a relationship with you. And God, we love to hear that by the Spirit, we are prompted to pray and we have the Spirit come alongside us to pray to you. Father, we love that you are praying for us and with us and alongside us. God, it empowers us and it, it emboldens us to come to you. Lord, would you do that in our spirit right now? Would you help us to repent of thinking that we pray in our own strength and in our own abilities? God, we love that we pray through the Son, that the gift of the Son's relationship with you is given to us, that we enter at his level. Lord, we pray this in your name, believing that we are here now talking to you at the level of the perfection of Jesus Christ. God, Help us to repent and forgive us for when we believe less than that and when we try to pray in our own name, in our own reputation. Lord, we know that that's fool's gold. We pray in your name even now as we ask you to teach us to pray. And then, Father, we thank you that we can pray to you and that you are a good Father who loves to hear from us and who is available to us and who is looking out for our best. Lord, you, we, we thank you that you don't answer our prayers that it wouldn't end up in good and that you have the sovereign knowledge to know what is best. And so, Lord, we, we ask you, God, even as we're praying, Lord, teach us to pray. We believe that's in line with Scripture. But, Lord, it, it, lead us to the right understanding of these things and the longing of our hearts to truly follow after you that we would pray according to your will. Lord, don't give us anything outside of your will in these things. And so, Lord, we call on your name. We'll call on the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ that gives, opens the door to the relationship with you. We pray right now by the Holy Spirit, through the name of Jesus, to the Father. We thank you for the gift of prayer. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.